Please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. looking at verses 8 through 12, but I will read verse 7 to help us keep the context. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Heavenly Father, we ask for help this morning. Father, we, we can do nothing of ourselves. Father, help us to hear your word. We ask for the Spirit's help to apply the word to our hearts. That we would see the, the bold example of the Apostle Peter and follow it by the Spirit's help. And Father, we do ask that if any in here don't know you today, that they would come for the very first time to understand this this great truth that salvation is found in Jesus and no one else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we have been looking here in the book of Acts at the early church where they begin to experience persecution for the very first time. And yet they are faithful in their calling and their duty to spread the gospel, even in the face of persecution. And and, and it's just a striking similarity to what we see today, isn't it? Of course, the world doesn't want to hear the gospel. but, But you notice that it's not really the Gentiles that... Peter and John are dealing with here. It's it's the church. It's the Jews at the time. And so you can go out to a a pride festival like we did yesterday, and you have people who tell you, I am a Christian, and Jesus would not do what you are doing. You mean that Jesus would not share the, the gospel with others? And I had an elder and a I believe it was a CRC church recently trying to convince me that, that homosexuality is not wrong. 
So, so it's not just out there, but, but even in the so-called churches where this is the case, where we may face hard times for speaking truth boldly. And so we saw last week that if we are to be faithful in fulfilling our mission, which is the Great Commission, then we must look for and utilize opportunities to proclaim the gospel, not running away from them. And this was the example given to us in our text. We read in verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So Peter and John perform a miracle. And they stand trial for doing this. And what is this to Peter? An opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And we looked at the example of the the other apostles. And we looked at the example of the early church. And and they did the exact same thing. And, And most importantly, not only do we have these examples, but we have the command in the Great Commission. And so we talked about this. That this command, this Great Commission, tells us that as we are going, whatever we do, wherever we go, we are to be about the business of making disciples. And so because of our desire to make disciples, we, we search out, we, we look for and utilize opportunities to share the gospel. And guess what? When we look for opportunities, they come. And so once those opportunities arise, what do we say? What is it that we proclaim? And this is what we will see in our text today. Peter Standing before the Sanhedrin. He's arrested with John for preaching the gospel and healing a man. For for teaching Jesus and the resurrection. And now he stands trial before the Sanhedrin. And what does he say? And this is our point today. We must proclaim the one true gospel. When I was preparing this message, and even last night, I was thinking to myself, this is so basic. Does it even need to be said? It's so basic. But then you hear about legislation and things like that, that you know, it's abusive if you confront people with the truth. And so even this morning in Sunday school, we, we are talking about this, how it can be a very real temptation, especially when, when you know, people start coming down on you for that. You can be arrested if you call out sin and tell people to turn to Christ because that's oppressive and abusive. You can lose a job because of that. You, you lose family members and, and friends because of that. And in some places, you, you lose your life. For that. So, so I was reminded this morning of the importance to, to actually be stirred up to proclaim what is so simple, what is so basic to the gospel. So we must proclaim the one true gospel. And as has already been noted, there, there is no power in a false gospel. To, to change or, or water down the gospel is to remove the power. This is the only message that God uses to save souls. The apostles don't try to trick people into believing. They don't try to appeal to the fleshly desires of the Sanhedrin. They don't water down their message so that people are not offended. 
They simply proclaim the gospel faithfully. And we will see in our text that this means at least two things. First, we must show people their sin and contention with God. Peter answers the question of the Sanhedrin. Rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. It's very easy to glance over these verses without seeing what Peter actually did here. Peter, in these verses, shows the Sanhedrin that they are at odds with God. They have contention with God. That they are acting sinfully. And he does this in three ways. First, the Sanhedrin is examining them concerning a good deed. Peter says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. How how does this show their sin? Calvin says, undoubtedly, Peter lays tyranny to the charge of the priests and the scribes because they examine them unjustly concerning a benefit which deserves praise as if he and his fellow had committed some heinous offense. MacArthur says Peter began by indicting them for the incongruity of putting him and John on trial for a benefit done for a sick man. He thus turned the tables on the Sanhedrin and subtly accused them of injustice. Certainly it could not be wrong to heal a lame man. So Peter is pointing out their injustice. And not only that, but their lack of mercy. How is this just? To arrest a person for doing a good deed. To to examine and try a person for, for helping a sick man. How is this just? By the way, this is very relevant to us because convert, for example, a homosexual. And what does the homosexual community think of you for that? You've done a good deed. Now you need to be punished for it because they don't believe it's a good deed. And it's quite interesting, because here is the the, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and, and you notice they have no joy in the fact that a crippled man from birth for 40 years has been healed. And we see this pattern throughout the scripture, don't we? Look at the life of Christ. How many people were healed and and raised from the dead and and the demon-possessed were set free and you never really see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes rejoicing, do you? What kind of man is that? To see a man who has to beg alms his entire life in order to survive, be healed, and the first thing that comes to your mind is, Let me arrest the person who did that. Would would we call that a merciful person? Absolutely not. 
So, so they are guilty of a lack of mercy. And this is the problem because what did Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does James say? Judgment is without mercy for the one who shows no mercy. And we've been over this. This is not saying that we earn mercy by showing mercy. But if God has been merciful to us, our hearts are changed and we will show mercy to others. So what is he saying? I think this is summarized by Christ in, in Matthew 23. And we read the other account in Luke this morning. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So as Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees for neglecting justice and mercy, now Peter is showing the Sanhedrin that they too are guilty of injustice and not showing mercy by arresting and examining men for simply showing mercy. This man was shown mercy and healed by God in Jesus' name. And the Sanhedrin is now acting contrary to God by arresting them and judging them for a good deed done in God's name. They are at odds with God. They are acting contrary to God's will. It was God's will for this man to be shown mercy, and they hate it. They are acting sinfully. And so Peter points out another sin to them. They crucified Jesus, but what did God do? He raised him from the dead. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This is a very condemning statement. You crucified someone whom God raised from the dead. This shows that they were working contrary to God. They wanted Christ dead, calling for him to be murdered, though he was innocent. But God did not leave him in the grave. It was not God's will for him and his teaching to be gone, but to be here. You crucified this man in your so-called zeal for God. You wanted him and his influence to be gone forever. But God raised him from the dead to live and reign forevermore. You crucified him to get rid of his power and authority. But what did God do? Raised him from the dead, giving him all authority, both in heaven and on earth. You crucified him to get rid of his teaching. But what did God do? He raised him from the dead, giving him all authority and power to make disciples that would go out and spread his teaching through all of the world. You wanted his teaching to stop, but God raised him from the dead to spread it to every nation, group, and people. You can't be more contrary to God than that. In crucifying Jesus, they were acting contrary to God. This means they were not killing a blasphemer who wrongly made himself equal to God. No, they murdered a man, an innocent man. And not only did they murder an innocent man, the, the man that they murdered was the Messiah. The very Son of God, which means God Himself. 
They're murderers. Peter is not biting his tongue. He said, God sent the Messiah to redeem us. And you murdered him. There was one man, only one man who ever lived, who was perfectly holy and righteous, who never did wrong to anyone, and you murdered him. And then, thirdly, they rejected Christ, but he became the cornerstone. He was made the cornerstone. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And this is just a brilliant way of showing their enmity with God. The Sanhedrin, again, is acting against God. They, they rejected Christ by crucifying him, but, but God made Christ the cornerstone. And, and what exactly does this mean? Well, the cornerstone is often a large stone at the base of a building. Sometimes a foundation stone. And this can also refer to the first stone laid, which was used as a reference point for every other stone in the building. The Westminster Bible Dictionary tells us that a cornerstone is a principal stone in the foundation of a building or at the front angle. Some of the cornerstones in the ancient work of the temple foundations are 19 feet long and seven and a half feet thick. And so sometimes this, this cornerstone, being one of the, the first stones laid, would actually support the weight of the entire structure. And Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone. This means that the very stone that was most important in building the church was rejected by the so-called leaders of the church. What God designed to be the most important stone, the most distinguished stone, the, the leaders did what? They said, is irrelevant. The religious, the religious leaders reject Christ by, by crucifying him, but God raised him from the dead, making him the preeminent foundation of the church. You don't have a church without Christ. And they rejected Christ. Peter also uses this terminology to show them that this is fulfillment to Scripture. This is fulfillment to prophecy. David says this very same thing. And Jesus applies this to himself in Matthew 21. But we can go all the way back to the Psalm, Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is all Peter quotes. But what is the very next verse? This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So it is clear. This is God's doing. When we look at Psalm 118, it was God who made Christ the cornerstone, the very stone that was rejected by the religious leaders. So once again, this means the leaders standing before Peter are shown to be sinful enemies of God by rejecting the very one whom God has made the preeminent foundation of the church. They are at odds with God. So again, Peter does not hold back. But he proclaims the truth even though it's offensive 
I love how MacArthur says that Peter refused to compromise the gospel by deleting what would offend the Sanhedrin. He spoke courageously because he was devoted to the truth and entrusted the outcome to his Lord. Dear friends, this is required for faithful gospel proclamation. Peter understood that to faithfully proclaim the gospel, we must show people their sins and contention with God. Unless a person understands they are a sinner, they don't understand they need to be saved. We don't like doing this because it sounds judgy. It sounds judgmental. You just want to condemn me for my sins. So, so we try to share the good news with someone who doesn't want good news because they don't understand their, their state before God. It's interesting when you talk to unbelievers. Almost, how almost every single one of them who, who's not a full-blown atheist, they believe they are right with God. Are they Christians? No. Don't profess to be Christians. Yes, I believe there is a God or a higher power, but I'm right with him. I'm okay with him. And if they're not okay with him, all it takes is to get my life on track a little bit more. And so many unbelievers say things like what? Only God can judge me. And they seem to, at least they at least seem to, to obtain some kind of comfort from that. But what they don't realize is that they are at odds with God and thus enemies of God, which means that it is true that ultimately only God can judge them. But this should not be a comfort to you, but a terrifying reality. The problem is that they don't really see their sins. They don't know that it's a a terrifying thing, that, that God is their judge. They need to be shown that they are sinners who are acting contrary to God. They are at odds with God. So in proclaiming the gospel, we must be faithful in showing unbelievers their sins. This is what Peter does. And this is why we give the law first. The law shows us our sinfulness. This is the way we understand our sin by going to the law. God's standard for righteousness. In Romans, Paul tells us that we are justified freely by God's grace. But what does he say right before that? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We just heard about Jesus and the the woman at the well. What did he say? You've had five husbands. The, The one you are with now is not your husband. Before he reveals himself as the Messiah, the Savior, he shows her her sinful heart. We think of Jesus talking to the the rich young ruler. This man asks, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, "You, you know the commandments. And this man is deceived. And so he says, I have kept them from my youth. Was that true? 
Absolutely not. But he didn't see his sin. So what did Jesus do? He proved to him his sinfulness. Because what is, how is the first tablet of the law summarized by Christ? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what did the rich young ruler do when, when Christ said, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me? What did the rich young ruler do? He walked away sad because he had great possessions. Did he love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength if he would not give up his possessions to follow him? No. Jesus showed him. He, when, when the law itself, just reading the law, did not convict this man of his sinfulness, what did Jesus do? He, he gave him an example. He showed him. You have not obeyed the law. You are under sin. What does Paul tell us in Romans 7, 9? I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. He thought he was fine and well living in sin, but, but once he really understood the law, his, his sin became alive to him and he realized that he was dead in his sins and his trespasses. It was the law that did this. I love Ray Comfort's approach. He does this so well. Using the law to, to show people their sins. And so he goes to a person and he says, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Yes. That's called blasphemy. Have, have you ever looked upon the opposite sex with, with, with lust? Yes. That's called adultery. Have you ever told a lie? Yes. What do we call someone who tells a lie, and they respond, a liar. Have you ever taken anything that does not, that did not belong to you? And they say yes, and he says, what does that make you? A thief. And they answer it. And so he says, by your own admission, I don't even have to say it, you just admit it, that you are a blasphemous, adulterous, lying thief. Now, what are you going to do when you stand before God, who is a righteous judge? And now that they understand that, now that they understand that they just admit it to blasphemy, adultery, lying, and stealing, they, they, they are more inclined to hear, what must I do to be saved? Because this is actually bad. I just admitted my guilt before God. But this is what the law does. And once a person feels the, the weight of that. When they feel that they are under their sin, this is when they desire the good news of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians, but the scripture has confined all under sin. I love that word confined. It's like imprisoned, or like a fishing net coming up and trapping the fish on all sides. This is what God's law does to us. There's no escape. It shows us our sins, and we try to run this way, and we've sinned against that law, and we go this way, and we've sinned against that law, and so we run here, and we run there, and no matter where we go, the law condemns us. There's no escape. And once a person is pent down in the net of God's law, what do they say? They cry out, what must I do to be saved? Perhaps even some of us here today feel the weight of our sins. You feel like the, the law of God 
is trapping you right now and you, you have no escape. You are, you are buried under the weight of your sins and you understand that like the Sanhedrin, you are at odds with God. You know that you have broken His law and this makes you God's enemy. You know that God is, is the judge and that you are in trouble because the very judge who is righteous is your enemy. And so feeling entrapped by your sins... You ask the question today, what must I do to be saved? And if you are not a Christian here, dear friend, this is the most important question for you to ask today. What must I do to be saved? Because you don't have to remain under the weight of your sin. There is an escape. There is a way out. And so Peter shows the Sanhedrin their sin and contention with God, but he does not leave them there. And this is the second point of how we faithfully proclaim the gospel. We must point sinners to Christ alone. And this is what Peter does. He says in verse 11, By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him... This man is standing before you well. This is the direct answer to their question. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And by the way, we don't perform miracles today. But when people come to us and say to us, by what authority are you standing out here judging me? Who gave you the right to come out here and tell me that I am a sinner under the wrath of God and that I need to repent? Who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to do this? As was pointed out in Sunday school this morning, our answer is the same. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Where do we find this? As, as we saw in Sunday school, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. In other words, in light of the fact that all authority has been given to Christ, go and make disciples of all the nations. The very Jesus, who now has all authority, both in heaven and on earth, commands us to make Disciples, this means that when we are making disciples, we are doing this under whose authority? Jesus. When we call sinners to to faith and repentance, whose authority are we acting under? Jesus. And so Peter answers their question directly. Jesus is the one who made this man well. But then he uses this to show them something else that Jesus has done. Not only did Jesus heal this sick man, but Jesus is the only way for any person to be saved. And so he says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There needs to be a trigger warning on this verse. There is salvation in no one else. That, that our culture just cannot tolerate that. 
that this means that salvation is found in only one person. And, if, and in case you missed it, Peter states it another way. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This means that Jesus is the only one who can save sinners. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. In no other name, no other person. Listen to Jesus himself. I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When a person says, I'm saved because I'm good with God, even though Jesus is not in the picture, is that person saved? No. But God loves me, God is, is love. He would not punish me. We don't need Jesus because God is love in and of himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot be reconciled to God or find salvation in God except through Jesus. And listen to what what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Matthew Henry says a mediator supposes a controversy. Sin had made a quarrel between us and God. Jesus Christ is a mediator who undertakes to make peace, to bring God and man together. You hear the unbelievers say, I, I, I pray to God, I am close to God. Dear friend, without Jesus being the mediator, you are as far from God as you can be. There is no reconciliation. There, there is no prayer. There is no salvation. There, there is nothing between you and God except for wrath. Unless you have Jesus standing in the gap. And so we must be like Peter and proclaim an exclusive gospel, telling those in sin that salvation can be found in Christ, in Christ alone. By the way, Peter says this to people who crucified Christ. There is salvation in no one else. That's the very man they crucified. You think that was offensive to them? Yeah, absolutely. But it was the truth. We must be courageous in this. Again, we, we live in a world that hates absolute truth and, and that despises being told that, that Jesus is the only way. But that is precisely what we must do. In a world that preaches tolerance and inclusion, we must proclaim an exclusive gospel. MacArthur says, Christians preach an exclusive Christ in an inclusive age. Because of that, we are often accused of being narrow-minded, even intolerant. Many paths, it is said, lead to the top of the mountain of religious enlightenment. How dare we insist that ours is the only way? In reality, however, there are only two religious paths. 
the broad way of work salvation leading to destruction, and the narrow way of faith, and the only Savior leading to eternal life. As I've said before, the religious leaders put Christ to death for his ministry on earth. And now here's Peter and John standing before the religious leaders, asking, by what name did you do this? And as I've said before, you, you, have, to, you have to consider what might be in Peter's mind at this point in time. They put Christ to death. And I know that the answer to my question is Jesus Christ. Should I say it? I mean, he could be vague and say God healed him. They, wouldn't, they would not have disagreed with that. But what is his response? The Jesus that you crucified, he's the one who did this. He's offensive. Instead of compromise, Peter proclaims that those in the Sanhedrin were in sin and were enemies of God and that God healed this man. And not only that, but, but the Jesus they, they hated and crucified is the only way for them, the religious leaders, to be saved. So by saying this, Peter implied that the Sanhedrin were not saved. Because they were not trusting in Jesus. They hated Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. And so by Peter saying, that's the only way, he was implying that they are not saved. They do not have salvation. And this is the same for us today. Dear friends, if we love our neighbors, we must tell those who are not trusting in for salvation that they are not saved. We cannot back away from that. It's not loving. It's actually hateful to lie to someone or to mislead them in a way that will lead to their destruction. That's not loving. And perhaps there's someone here who's not trusting in Jesus for salvation today. Dear friend, you are lost in your sins. You are not saved. You are hellbound. And so you say, I, I know, it, it's clear, it's obvious, there is no other way to salvation. There is salvation in no one else but, but Jesus. But how do I receive the salvation that Jesus provides? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's that simple. And, and as we turn to Christ in faith, we, we, we must turn from our sins in repentance. This is what the gospel calls sinners to do, to turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus for salvation. And if we love sinners, this is what we must do. Call them to turn from their sinful lifestyle and trust in Jesus wholeheartedly for salvation. Dear friends, in conclusion here, if we are to be faithful to our mission, once again, even in the midst of persecution, we must proclaim the gospel faithfully. 
Enough with the tricks. Enough with the, with the compromise to, to not be offensive to culture. A gospel that does not offend a sinner does not save a sinner. Do we understand that? That the power of the gospel is not found in our cleverness. In our ability to manipulate people. In our ability to make a person walk an aisle or make a decision for Christ or pray a prayer. The power is in the gospel. I love how our brother Jeremy this morning Refer to this spiritual battle we are in. Look, looking back at the story of, of David and Goliath. One of the things that is most striking to me in that account is what David says to Goliath. He, a boy standing before a giant. A seasoned killer. And he says to him, You come before me with sword. And shield. By the way, that was a massive sword and a massive shield. That's like saying, you, you come before me with an army tank. I come before you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. What does this mean? It means God of the armies of heaven. This is often referred to in, in military terms. He's standing before a giant in an army as a boy, confidently, because he comes in the name of the God of the armies of heaven. David understood that sword and shield could not help him in that situation. He was totally dependent on Christ, on God, acting in obedience. Yes, he, he had to... He had to get the stone. He had to make the effort to go and do that. But he was not depending upon his muscles and his know-how and his battle-hardenedness. Because he was outweighed in all of those things. He was trusting in what? The power of God. Dear friends, you and I stand before a world like David. What are we trusting in? Shield? Sword? You stand before unbelievers. And they come out in in warfare against you. Mocking and trying to shut you up and and hitting you or doing whatever it is that they they do to try to, to stop you. What is your weapon at that point in time? Is it your cleverness? Is it your ability to answer objections? Different, where is the power? Where is the power? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? We all know this. For it is the power of God unto salvation. If we want the power of God to be shown in the life and heart of an unbeliever, what must we do? What is our weapon? The gospel. And dear friends, there is no more powerful weapon. Why are we sitting here? Because we were born innocent, lovers of God? No. The the gospel struck down our unbelief. 
God used the the proclamation of the gospel to do what? To rip out our hearts of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. The power was in the gospel. God working through the gospel. And so what do we do when we change the gospel in order to be clever or relevant? We take away the only weapon we have there. We can never expect to be effective in our evangelism or anything else that we do if we are going to rely upon ourselves. Maybe we can go out and we can convince unbelievers to come and and visit our church. What good is this without the gospel? If it's just a matter of convincing people to, to come and be a part of a social club. No. We want hearts to be changed. Lives to be changed. And the gospel does this. So we must be faithful. And being faithful means two things. Showing sinners their sin and contention with God. And once they feel the weight of their sin, doing what? Pointing them to the only one who can save them, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And dear friends, may we be faithful in this. We'll talk next time about the response to this. We see in verse 13 that when they saw the the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. This is the effect of the gospel. And a little detail, and I say little jokingly there, in the beginning of this, before Peter preaches, it says what? He was filled with the Spirit. And so next time we're going to look at this point of how did, did Peter stand here boldly, the very same Peter who denied Christ three times to a servant girl. How does he now stand so boldly that the leaders are astonished and can say nothing against it? He was filled with the Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to never compromise this. Help us to see the folly of compromising this. Lord, we know that we live in an age, just as every age has been, where people don't want to hear that they are sinners. But help us to see, as faithful Christians, we must show people their sins. They they need to know that they need a Savior. And so may we be faithful, may we not be afraid to, to show people that they have transgressed God's law and that they are guilty. And may we be faithful in pointing unbelievers to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the only one who can save us from our sins. And Father, may we be faithful to our mission faithful in proclaiming the truth to those around us, faithful in making disciples. And may we trust not in our own abilities, but may we trust in the power 
of God that is revealed in the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And may we see hearts changed, souls saved, and here in Holland, in the entire city, and all around us, and all over the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.